name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. It's a big blessing to be with you um, here in St. Mary. Uh, this church is, like Kabuna said, a, a blessing because we have more uh, opportunities here to celebrate the Feast of St. Mary. This is the first church to start. I count it as a blessing for myself, as a preparation for me, God willing, this year to go through the St. Mary Revival services um, every day for the next two weeks. I got a head start by being here, so I'm very thankful to God to be with you, to be in your midst. Um, I want, by God's grace, to uh, do what Abuna just said, which is to start us off with the Pauline Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1. I'm going to quickly read the chapter for us so that we know what this is saying, and then, God willing, we'll have some reflection and contemplation on the first chapter of the Romans by St. Paul. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I find my, may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greek and to barbarians, to both wise and to unwise, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and foolish in their hearts, and their hearts were darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God to an image made like incorruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which is, was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only to do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And glory be to God forever. Amen. God willing, you can read the next 16 chapters during this holy 16 days, right? Abuna said it's 15 days or 16 days, so if you read one chapter every day, you'll finish the book of uh, Romans. Let me uh, start with a quick introduction. First of all, the, the letter to the Romans is the most famous, the most famous of all St. Paul's letters. St. Paul obviously wrote how many epistles or letters? 14. Some say 13, best will say 14. Some say that he didn't write Hebrews, best will say the church says that he wrote 14 letters. This letter is one of his most famous letters. The, the letter to the, Galatia, uh, the Thessalonians is actually the first thing that was written in all of the Bible, in the New Testament canon. When you look at the first writing in the New Testament, the Thessalonians was the, f the first of the letters. This is actually one of the most amazing proclamations of the Christian gospel. We know when we say the gospel, we say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? We think immediately the good news. We think Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But St. Paul, Paul is also speaking about the Christian gospel. This is described as the power of God revealed from heaven for the salvation of all those who believe, right? There is a dire need for all human beings for God's saving work in Jesus Christ. The gospel, the saving of all of humanity, is not just for Christian people, but for the whole world. St. Paul also describes the majestic fruits of the life of a Christian. So we're going to see in, that, in this chapter that the gospel is revealed. The good news is shown to us. It's unveiled. And by God's grace, we'll go through this. St. Paul, in this first chapter, sets forth a gospel of which he is not ashamed. He is not embarrassed. St. Paul is someone that is bold and courageous to preach the gospel. The theme that is laid out and unpacked through the 16 chapters of this epistle are very important for us. 
I want to begin with the first word, the first word of the letter. He begins very simply with his name, Paul. He says, Paul. He is establishing himself as an authority in the church, as an apostle, also as a slave of Jesus Christ. His name is enough to get the attention of the Roman people just by his name. What is amazing about this, if you were to write a letter to someone, you would think, oh, they know him, right? He's saying his name to the Romans, oh, they know him. He must have uh, had some experiences with them. What is amazing about this, they only knew of him. They, the Roman people only knew about him. He never visited Rome yet, right? But he was planning to visit Rome. So St. Paul is writing this letter in a way to prepare them for his visit. He's preparing them for what he hopes to say to them in person. He also wants to prepare them in a way for basically saying, I need your help. He had in his mind to go preach to Spain. He wanted to take the Christian faith all the way to Spain, and he wanted to have partnership with the Roman people. We know this from St. Paul because in his other letters, he acknowledges the names of his friends and disciples and co-workers. He says in other letters, Paul and Timothy. But here he only says his name, Paul. So the other thing that I want to say is that St. Paul is our Lord Jesus Christ's slave. He's not embarrassed to call himself the slave of Christ. Right? I wonder sometimes if we can learn something from this important statement of being the slave of Christ. It's sometimes an easy word to say, I'm a servant, I'm a slave. Maybe easier to say, I'm a servant. Easy to say. But to say slave, right? In Arabic, you know the name Abdul Masih, slave of Christ. This is really for St. Paul a great boast. He's boastful in his slavery to Christ. If we have this sort of idea, then our identity, our self-identity, the young people, right? I'm, I'm young like you, okay? And we struggle with identity, right? So our identity is something we struggle with. What's the first thing that you think of? right, when you're living in this secular society and culture, right, confidence and, uh, you know, positive self-image and being popular and being successful. The last thing you would think is someone to say, I'm a slave, right? That's actually very against the, the 21st century, right? Everyone's trying to escape oppression and slavery and all this stuff. But this is actually the foundation of the Christian identity, to say, I am a slave of Christ, right? And I want to give you an example of what this means, right? Think about this. If I'm a slave, then I have a master. But the question is, who my master is? My master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And any slave would not question the authority of their master. The master says, do this, you do this. You do that, you do that. Now, think about what our master is asking us. Fast, pray, love. Do all these good things, right? And these are the questions we have for ourselves. Look at how we think. Should I forgive this person or not? You see how 
Interesting this thought is, should I forgive him or not? Should I fast or not? These are the questions we have. These are not the questions a person that follows a master should ask, but rather maybe ask these questions. Can I forgive like God forgave? Can I wholeheartedly forgive like Jesus for, uh, forgave? That's the question. That's the correct way to think. St. Paul's first description of himself is as a slave of Jesus Christ. The other thing that's so important about this is that St. Paul makes one of his disciples transcribe what he is saying. He has someone that's a stenographer transcribing all that he says. And he is listening very carefully and he is writing very um, accurately what St. Paul is saying. Right? We know this because in this letter, in the 16th chapter, in verse 22, he actually, the, the, the transcriber says, hello to you who are in Rome. If you follow this verse, you're going to find it. Which is uh, a little funny because he's, his job is just to write. His job is just to transcribe. The other thing here is that we know that St. Paul wrote this letter when he was in Corinth. And Corinth is in Greece. And we know that St. Paul spent three months in Greece. It's recorded in Acts chapter 18 through 21. And he wrote this in the company of Timothy. And he also wrote it at the home of Gaius, who was the one uh, baptized by St. Paul and with Erastus in Romans 16.23. So this letter was also then delivered by the deaconess named Phoebe, who was also from Corinth. So for this reason, we know that this letter was written in Corinth. I don't want to spend too much time on the authorship or the date of the authorship of this letter, but it's sometime in the 50s, okay? Maybe 20 years after the letter to the Thessalonians. And he wants, like I said, to get the help of the Romans. And he also wants them to understand the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, when we study this letter, this is amazing because we have in our church someone very, very important that spoke about this letter, St. John Chrysostom. St. John Chrysostom in Arabic, Yohanna Zahab Fem, he wrote 44 commentaries, 44 homilies on this epistle alone. This is one of the greatest collection of his writing. And we know from this that he focuses a lot on chapter 1 because he, he gave four sermons only on chapter 1. The thing about St. Paul is that he didn't just study the faith. He actually experienced the faith through the experience of living with Christ. I want to also mention something that I think is so important. We all know of Saul in the Old Testament. You know Saul, and, uh, who was who was persecuting David. Some of the commentators say that we see the old Saul persecuting David and we see the new Saul persecuting the new David who is Jesus Christ. 
So this is the connection between the Old and the New Testaments that we see here. St. Paul sees himself as the greatest of sinners. He sees himself to be in submission to the church. He was the greatest ambassador to the church. I think it's important to tell you what St. Paul thought of the church. He did not think that salvation was out of the church. His ecclesiology, his way of thinking about the church, is beyond any one of us in our thinking of the church. He believes that there is no salvation outside of the church, right? He sees that Jesus Christ led him to the church. He learned forgiveness of sins and he never distinguished from being baptized into the church. He believed that if you are baptized, you are part of the church. He also learned that the Holy Spirit was the one who baptized everyone into the one body of Christ. That the life with Christ is lived in the church and with his united body. He also learned that he was part of that one body and that it was broken and consumed in the Eucharistic bread. He could not see any separation between his involvement in the liturgy and being part of the church. So we see his baptism, his Eucharistic theology, his ecclesiology, all of this is so important. He learned to be strong by this one thing, faith and weakness. This was St. Paul. St. Paul was a man hunted down. He was constantly talking about being hard-pressed on every side. He was always, always being hunted down for doing his work. St. Paul to the point where he was let down through a basket to escape the governor of Damascus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine right now that if this was in a taller building and we were being persecuted by the, 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 the police or something or anyone, who knows, not the police, the police are to help us, but I'm saying someone like that's against us, that you would take me and you'd put me in a basket to get me to escape, that's St. Paul, right? He learned that the cross was wiser than any Greek philosophy. This was St. Paul. I want to say a few more things about the Church of Rome and then I'll quickly end with some ideas about the first chapter. The Church of Rome was the capital of the empire, right? It was the most illustrious, the largest, the most prosperous city in the Roman Greco world, right? The faith there was prospering as we know from St. Paul. The Jews were in Rome from the second century BC. They believe and estimate that there was 50,000 Jews in Rome by the middle of the first century. So this is something so important for us to see and understand because they were prepared for the gospel. Many were brought by, as slaves by the Roman and then freed. And they had rights granted to them by the emperor to worship, to collect a sanctuary tax, tax to, uh, for, for Jerusalem, to abstain from the court proceedings on the Sabbath, to decline any military service. We know also that there was 12 ancient synagogues in Rome thriving on the west bank of the Tiber River. But then something happened in the, the 49th year of our Lord. The Edict of Claudia Claudius was, was announced and this expelled the Jews from Rome. So we know that this is a very important city for St. Paul and for the whole empire. As I said, St. John Chrysostom spends 32 homilies, I'm sorry, 
not 44, but 32 homilies on this letter alone, and he speaks with four and a half homilies just on chapter one, right? This is so important because St. John Chrysostom doesn't say anything about them being special. He doesn't say to them, I know some of you guys are senators and famous people and important people and wealthy people. No, he treats all of the Christians as if they were like any other believer. St. Paul shows no partiality. He doesn't show up to them or write to them in a letter that you're so great and so amazing because of your status. He was called beloved by God just, he called them beloved by God just as we are called beloved by God. He calls them to be saints. St. John Chrysostom says he called them to the level of great humble-mindedness. St. John Chrysostom is saying to them, listen, be humble-minded. Don't think of yourself to be of a status and a reputation because you're from Rome. But he also praises them, right? The best thing that we see here is there is something of a kononia, a fellowship that Jesus Christ makes very clear to us as an example. The best thing we can learn from this letter is how there's two parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 11. This is seen as how God is saving us. The second part is from 12 to 16, and this is how St. Paul guides us on how to live a Christian life. This is, in a basic way, the outline. And so I want to quickly, quickly mention the next few verses um, for our benefit. There is a beautiful and a gracious opening where St. Paul asserts his divine calling. He is the apostle of God, and therefore the Romans really need to pay attention. He's setting them up for a message. And St. John Chrysostom, he comments on his apostleship. He says that the apostleship is the greatest of all the gifts and comprehends, comprehends all the spiritual gifts, which means just by being an apostle of Jesus Christ, you have the ability to know all the spiritual gifts. He even says to them in the letter, I wish to come to you just to give you and impart to you a spiritual gift. St. Paul was controversial in his day. They saw that his teachings were controversial. They thought of him maybe to be someone very intellectual. But St. Paul, at the end of the day, was an apostle of Jesus Christ and a slave of Christ. His preaching of the gospel to both the Christians and the non-Christians are the same. He is not just doing the work to, the, to preach to, to uh, non-Christians. He's also concerned with the Christians. This point is so important for us. Why? Because we think that because we're Christians, we don't need the gospel. Like, check, I passed. I know the gospel. No, think about what we do as Christians. We are constantly being re-evangelized by our liturgy. We are constantly listening to the scripture, to the Bible in the services. It never gets old for the Christian to hear the scriptures being read and read again and again. We are constantly being re-evangelized. This is a prophetic action and not just words. St. Paul points out in the opening of the introduction that this was something proclaimed by the prophets. It is not something new, but he actually makes 60 references in this epistle of the Old Testament, more than any other epistle in the, the Bible, in the, in the letters of St. Paul, right? This shows us something so important that he sees the justification as faith, of faith as something prepared for us for, 
the beginning of time. Right? He uses the example of Abraham offering Isaac, not just saying something about Abraham and Isaac. St. John Chrysostom says the prophets promoted the gospel, but we, but what they did say about what they did, right? He says basically they promoted the gospel, but not what they said, but what they did. The gospel. This is such an important point for the Romans. If you said the word gospel in Rome at this time, they wouldn't think the good news of Jesus Christ. They would think about the language used in the empire. When an emperor used the term gospel, evangelion, it meant to say, I have something important to say to you. It was a word used by the Romans before we used it. We Christianized and baptized the, the word gospel. So when St. Paul says, forget what you're saying about someone becoming a new emperor, because this was in Evangelion, this was gospel to the people in Rome. He said, forget about these kings and these rulers. I will announce to you the true gospel. I will announce to you the true emperor, the only and true God, Jesus Christ. This is why St. Paul was immediately hunted down. He threatened the empire. He threatened the emperor. His goal was the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. This is so important because we are, as Christians, supposed to have faith and obedience. Faith and works. Our faith feeds our obedience. Our obedience also helps us become more faithful. There is no separation between these two. The two are one. Just like the mystery of Jesus Christ, His humanity, His divinity. You cannot separate these things. There is no such thing as a separation of faith and obedience. We are called to be holy, not just believe in holiness. We're not just supposed to listen to good things, but we are called to actually live it out. He says to them, grace and peace to you. I love it in Arabic. Salamu na'ma. They always say it. Salamu na'ma. It's coming from here. Grace and peace to you. It's a common Christian greeting that he says to the people. This is how Christians interact with each other. He also is thankful. He's prayerful. He says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken out of throughout the whole world. Think about this. St. Paul is telling people that he never met before that your faith is being spoken about of in the whole world. Can this be said of us? Can this, can this comment that St. Paul made in Romans 1.8 be said of our church? Can, can an apostle of Jesus Christ, if he were with us today, say, I have to thank you because everyone knows God because of you? It's a hard question. We can see the affection, the humility of St. Paul here. He's encouraging them. He's complimenting them. He wants to give them spiritual gifts. This is what we would encounter or experience if we had an apostle in our midst. You think, St. Paul, great authority, he's going to come in here and tear the walls down, right? No. The authority in the church is not an authority of power. It is an authority of being a slave of Christ. If you want to be the greatest, serve everyone. If you want to be the greatest, be everyone's slave and servant. I'm almost done. The salvation that we understand is in a future sense. 
the salvation that we have is not something that was just accomplished in the past. It is spoken about here in the future tense. Basically, our faith and our salvation is being worked out with fear and trembling. The gospel is not just a simple message. Jesus came, died on a cross, glory be to God forever, everyone go home. No. The gospel is a very detailed message. It is a, is a way of life. It shows us how history pans out. It gives shape to the existence of the world. Whenever St. Paul speaks of salvation, he uses it in the future sense. Right? And he uses it this, it's used this way most of the time in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that it negates the, the, the past tense and the present tense. We are currently being saved and we will be saved, God willing. The power of the gospel is the secret. You want to have power? Everyone wants power. How do you have power? It's in the gospel. The power that St. Paul had in his life was because of the gospel. It supplied his salvation. It supplied him with everything that he needed, right? For the whole world and not just the Jews. St. Paul was courageous, bold in the crucified Jesus. He didn't, he didn't give up on the idea that this is the glory of God. St. Paul saw many powerful signs. And St. John Chrysostom says something interesting. And this is very relevant to us. Think of this. He says, the adulterer, the homosexual, the robber, the magicians are not only suddenly freed from their punishment, but also to become righteous with the highest of all righteousness. I'm going to repeat this. This is the power of the gospel. You know how when we make sins, we're so guilty? How can I ever come back? How can I ever be God's son or daughter again? Look at, look at the beauty of his words. St. John Chrysostom says, the adulterer, the homosexual, the robber, the magician, they're not just freed from doing those sinful things. No, you don't just stop doing sins. You become righteous. And not just righteous, you become the highest of all righteousness. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel message do not take lightly. Both the devout and the wicked are justified the same way. This is really the blessing of the gospel. If we believe in this way, if we have this faith and obedience, we will truly be blessed in our life. Think of this. A lot of us as humans fear punishment, right? If I warn you and I say to you, there's a great punishment. And if you followed what we said in the, in the reading, it said all these very difficult things to all these sins. It shows the wrath of God. A lot of people don't like to think of the wrath of God. They say God is good and he's not going to be wrathful and he's going to be forgiving. Look at what St. John Chrysostom says here. He says the following. He says, in general, most people are not drawn by the promise of what is good, but they are drawn by the fear of what is painful. For this cause God not only promises a kingdom, but threatens hell. This is a human corrupt nature. Our human nature that is corrupted and messed up only responds in this way most of the time. If I tell you there's a punishment, this will most likely be the reason why you come back to God. 
Because most people, they don't think when they commit sins, oh, I'm going to lose the kingdom of heaven. They're just afraid of hellfire, right? That's the first thing. You, you show that you have matured if you are fearing to lose the kingdom of God. St. John also thinks that this, as I said, has to do with corruption. There is depravity in the world, but not total depravity. And this is something that is so important because people think that we cannot talk about the wrath of God. If you do not understand the justice and the mercy of God, you do not have the traditional and the scriptural understanding of Jesus Christ. God is both just and merciful. We have to understand him in this way because he speaks to us as a man. He speaks to us as God. The wrath of God, we suppress the truth of God when we don't think of it. St. John Chrysostom says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And indeed, even here, this often takes place in famines, in pestilence, and in wars. For individuals and for the common people. For now what takes place for this correction and what will take place is for vengeance. See here, when anything happens, it's for both correction now and justice later. We can see so much good even in the, the wrath of God. Five more minutes and I'll be done. Worship is the central act of the Christian. We come and we pray and we serve and we do all this stuff because worship is the heart of our faith. There are three ways that we know God. We know Him by causality, by things that are coming into existence, by cause and effect, by excellence and by negation, by what He is not. All of these are the exchange for those who resist the gospel. All of these things are, are given in an opposite way. St. Paul says, we refuse to praise God and to give thanks. That's the problem. That's the problem. Because we have a worship problem. When I finish, God willing, in a few minutes, I don't think it will get more crowded. I think it will get more empty. Once worship starts, people leave. When we abandon God, He abandons us. When we give up on God, He gives us up. And it says in this chapter three times, God gave them up. This is a harsh saying, a hard saying. And this is the last point I want to make. What does it mean that God gave them up? St. John Chrysostom says, He let them alone. For, he, for as he who has command of an army, he gives an example of an army. If the, if the general says to the, his army in the battle, I am stripping myself of you, he is not thrusting them into the problem. He is stripping them of his authority and his assistance. Thus, this is what God does to us. When we give him up, he gives us up over to the sins. He says, fine, you want the sin? Have it. Have all that you want of it. Right? The punishment is to be attached to sin. The punishment is nothing other than that. When someone says to you, God puts people in hell, this is false. We put ourselves in hell. We put ourselves in the problem because we, we show God that we love this problem. Think very carefully right now. Examine yourself. 
Ask yourself, what's that sin that you don't want to give up? After some time, he's going to say, Khalas, have it. Have all that you want of it. Why? Because I show God that this is what I want. The final thing I'm going to say is the scary last verse, which it says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I don't mean to make this hard, but St. Paul makes it hard for us. He says, even if you approve, if you let things go, if you make excuses and permit and give approvals, those are just as bad. So, what does this mean for us? Let us be watchful. Let us be careful. Let us be prayerful. Let us put back God in the center of our life. Let us worship Him in spirit and truth. Let us understand our identity, our identity in Christ, which is to be His slave. And to be the slave of Christ is to be a free person in God. And glory be to God forever. Amen.